Good afternoon, everyone. It's the lunchtime Pacific Coast version of Office Hours, and I got two of my favorite people here. I have the unbroken one, Michael Unbroken, co-hosting Office Hours with me back-to-back days. How are you, Michael? Man, amazing to be here. Super excited. When I saw the lineup for today, I was like, yo, I cannot wait for this one. Yeah, well, the first guest, we're going to set a Guinness Books of Book of World Records together in about a week Let's or go. a few days. But more importantly, we are going to elevate not only the consciousness of people, but we're going to elevate an entire generation uh, to learn what they're not learning in school, but to learn the greatest lesson of all, which to me is happiness and fulfillment, all the things that we're not teaching our children. David Williams, welcome to Office Hours, my friend. Thank you, and uh, pleasure ha- pleasure to be here, and appreciate you having me. We're excited. Well, you know, you surround yourself with the right people and the right ideas, and I don't know how we left off Michael and Broken from that killer crew behind you, the Tim Stories, Jim Quicks. Uh, you got the guy with the microphone there that looks just like me. I think that's John Lovitz, maybe. Yeah, that's your uh, your doppelganger there. My yeah. doppelganger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Eric, Eric Thomas, Cole Hatter, and we're all yeah, coming Jim together. Quick. Jimmy Darts, philanthropist, uh, social media influencer, Jimmy Darts. He's going to be there, too. It's, it's incredible, and it's a two-day event, August 18th and 19th, 3 to 8 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, it's a virtual event that's free. And we want everyone to bring all of their nieces, nephews, children, anyone that you can think of to learn all the things that we're not learning in school to help have a uh, purpose. How did you come up with this idea to have the whole www.elevate.kids event? Yeah, so I would say, you know, it really stems back to I've always had a heart for impact, right? You know, and this particular passion goes back to being being a kid. So when I was a kid, I was labeled with a learning disability, pretty severe. Uh, They tried to medicate me with severe ADHD, dealt with anxiety, got bullied as a kid. So I had a lot of of adversity at a young age that I fell through. But luckily, I was blessed with great parents. You could call my parents maybe my first mentors to help me through a lot of those things. And um, my brother... Um, my brother, he was basically on a similar path. So my brother also had, uh, uh, labels that he had, uh, that he was up against. My brother had, uh, uh, told he wasn't good enough, start hanging around with the wrong people. And when he, uh, let's see here. That's all right. We, that's why we do it live. <laughs> we got, you got too much energy. I always say when the technology, Michael goes down. Uh, we have too much energy and the universe is just reminding us of the power. Uh, but yes, so your brother had these challenges and started hanging out with the wrong people and the wrong ideas. Yeah. So my brother was hanging around with the wrong people, wrong ideas, went down the wrong path, got into a life of addiction. And then uh, the unthinkable happened. You know, eventually it just kept escalating, escalating and uh, led to a place where he's no longer with us. So this was really in his name uh, to try to impact maybe other Gary Williams, you know, if I was who I am today and I could go back in time and grab my brother and give him maybe some of the tools to get on the right track, uh, that's what it's all about is trying to prevent kids from going down that path early on. And um, I've always had a big heart for impact. And one day I was talking with another one of my mentors, Tim Story, that a uh, good friend of mine, mentor, we were working for a few years and just reflecting. I was like, you know, it's like every time my life just went to the next level, it was always a, a who moment. 
right? It was always an introduction to somebody. It was always somebody I was connected to, a mentor in my life. I was like, imagine if, you know, here I am later in life and now I'm starting to win. I'm starting to win from all these mentors. Imagine if kids had that early on or I had that early on, where would we be? I was like, how cool would it be if we started the first of its kind ever mastermind for kids where we're teaching them all the things that they don't teach enough in school, faith, family, freedom, finances, and fitness. And then Tim, uh, you know, being the good mentor that he was, he encouraged me and said, you know what, I would run with that. So that's exactly what we did. We built the brand for it. We got some of the best speakers. And when, when it came to, hey, how are we going to get this out to the world and announce it? We're like, let's put a, a free event on, bring some of the, the best of the best speakers like yourself in, Dave, you know, all people that I've had the luxury, I've been blessed to build relationships with over the past decade, over, over a half a million dollars of investment when it comes to mentorship and conferences. Um, and let's just bring them for free. To, to kids, parents across the globe. And uh, how cool would that be? And then let's let's ice the cake a little bit further. Let's make history together. Let's really make this a big thing, get Guinness World Records involved and make history when it comes to financial literacy for the most amount of kids in a virtual hangout, learning about financial literacy from some of the greats, allowing them to stand on the shoulders of giants. And then I've been running 100 miles an hour, putting this together ever since to just a passion, drive, and purpose to to impact and elevate the our next generation. Yeah, yeah David, it's absolutely amazing, man. I was gonna say and... we got the right guy to join us, Michael Unbroken. He almost went down that path, and uh, he was a victim himself of parents that went down that path. So, uh, sorry, Michael, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, you're you're good, man. I appreciate that, and I had the honor of uh, having David come on the podcast just last week, and we we put it out to the world and. Uh, there, there's something incredibly powerful about the willingness and the alignment that he has with wanting to make the world a, a different place than the one that we have currently. And I think that not only as leaders, but as as people who have access to the ability to do so, it's almost uh, a moral imperative to do so. David, what, what I'm curious about, you know, looking at this, there, there's so many times in our lives where we feel this calling and we find that the universe and maybe our mentors or our peers will say, yes, go for it, go for it, do this thing. But we, we kind of get in our own way, especially when you're talking about a level this big. How is it that you've been able to put this all together to push through to, I think you text me one day at like 4 a.m. Like how in the world are you finding the mental, emotional, physical energy to make this happen? Yeah, I think that's you know really an easy answer. Um, Cause when it comes to this, I probably never put more into a project before. I've been working harder on the clock on it, but it doesn't feel like work. It feels a lot like purpose. It feels like God's work. I feel like my feet are meant to where they are supposed to be. And really, um, I know we don't have time to share my whole backstory on this call, but a lot of the events from when I was a kid, all the struggles that I went through, the labels that I went through, the major health challenges that I went through, my career ending, imploding, where I'm in a place in my life and all of a sudden, I don't have a job, I don't have any money, and my health is in question, and I got doctors telling me that I'm going to be on disability the rest of my life, and I was able to push through those things, and I think in the moment, I'm asking God, you know, why are you doing these things? Why are these things happening to me? I feel like I'm a good person, and I keep, it's like I'm in the corner of a boxing ring, and I keep getting hit and keep getting hit. Well, I realized later on in life that that was uh, the, the strength training, the conditioning, he, I needed to take hits so I could understand the suffering of others and build myself in an individual that could, that could elevate other people and hold them up. So now I look at all those 
adversities and those places of uh, struggle. Um, it was the greatest blessing in my life because it made me the human that I am today. And I can deeply connect and understand a lot of the those same struggles that other people are going through. And I don't think knowing what I know today, I don't think they have to struggle. I think there's there's a compass, there's a roadmap to get through that wooded plain um, that I didn't have when I was either. And if I could deliver that to as many parents and kids, like that's where my heart's at. And, you know, David, one of the things that we haven't talking about, talked about, um, and you mentioned it, we talk about family and faith and, you know, all these things that they don't teach in school, but there is something that you're really good at, uh, and that's making money. And, you know, we live in a world where there's a lot more options, opportunities, and touches of favor, which lead to happiness uh, when we make money. And financial literacy, as far as a pragmatic uh, tool, is not taught in schools. No matter all yeah. the rhetoric that we see and the leaders that keep pressing upon it, there's no true financial literacy programs. And yet that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about during the two-day Elevate Experience, this youth education conference that is going to set my second Guinness Book of World Records, by the way, uh, is financial literacy. Uh, how important do you think, combined with all the you know, more subjective things that we talk about to elevate kids, how important is financial literacy even to yourself and your happiness and fulfillment? Oh, so I think it's incredibly important, but I think it, it's important to clarify too, right? We don't want to worship money, but we got to understand money that it's a tool that can get us and create the vehicle to get to where we want to go. Um, and I think where my relationship really started with money was, you know, I'll, I'll give the Cliff Notes version of it. Back in my Circuit City days, I was an executive at Circuit City. One day, uh, my career is running strong. Uh, I'm known as Mr. Fix-It, going around the stores, building them up on an innovation team for Circuit City. And then all of a sudden I woke up one morning and the, the unthinkable happened. I'm having severe back pain. Uh, my ankles swell up and I lost my ability to walk. Uh, started having severe, severe autoimmune conditions. Had to force myself to go off to work on disability for about six months. Obviously not working for six months. I forced myself to get back before I was ready so I didn't lose my job. Uh, I was in a tough financial spot. And I get back, I start to get a little bit of momentum under my belt. And then all of a sudden, the unthinkable happened again, where Circuit City filed Chapter 11. So now I'm broke, I'm jobless, and um, not in the greatest health. Doctors are saying, see, you know, it's probably the time that you consider long-term disability. And that wasn't the life that I wanted. So I did something crazy at a place my bank account was at its lowest. I wrote out a check for a million bucks. I still got it in my office. It's up there. And it wasn't about the money. But it was about, I knew if I could cash that check, I could build a life on my own terms that was conducive for my health. I could take care of my lovely wife because I knew she didn't want a guy that was going to hang out on the couch, be on disability his whole life. And then my parents were my heroes. Um, when my brother went down the wrong path, my dad dove into his business as an entrepreneur. Two of them worked around the clock seven days a week, operated on four hours sleep. Same thing with my mom. Hardest working people I ever met just so I didn't go to the place my brother did. But I watched and observed they didn't have the money. You know, they made everything happen. They gave us everything we needed, but they never bought new clothes for themselves. They never took vacations. They never saved for retirement, never bought that new car. And I knew in that moment, um, I had to be the one. I had to be the one that changed the trajectory of my family tree, the one that made something of myself so I could fulfill my goal of being my hero's hero one day. And, uh, you know, the, it, it, okay, what, so. what happened next is... Uh, 
liquidators came into Circuit City. I was trying to figure out how to get the money for that, how to cash that check. And they basically said when everything was closing down and I prayed on it, and this was God's answer to me, I think. Uh, they said, we're looking to get out, rid of all the open merchandise for pennies in the dollar. And I said, what if I just bought it up? I took the last seven grand of my name out of my 401k and bought up about 70,000 worth of electronics. I flipped it, sold it all on eBay, paid off my medical debt, raised the capital I needed for my first business. And I ran 100 miles an hour like somebody was trying to take it away from me 24-7. And uh, in turn doing that, I built it a decade later to a $20 million recurring revenue business, one of the largest insurance operations in the country. We exited that business and that money allowed me to start other businesses. It allowed me to impact. It allowed me to create a life for my wife, a life for my health. And then also to my parents, if you're wondering if I became their hero, I, I was blessed to be able to do that. I bought them their first brand new Cadillac. I take care of all their bills. And just uh, in the past two years, one of my proudest moments, I was able to buy them a new retirement home in Sarasota, Florida. As we've all three of us have changed our family trees and now I'm pushing my kids to change our family trees. I told my daughters that I will only pay for the wedding if they marry someone tall, uh, just a different type of change. But uh, <laughs> there you <go>. nonetheless, <laughs> we're elevating the Meltzers in a different way uh, with height uh, is the last uh, requirement that I have. Uh, if you don't get it, then email me. If you do get it, then go to www.elevate.kids and join us on August 18th or 19th. Stop by, bring as many kids as you know. Uh, I got all junior achievement rocking and rolling to show up here. We got uh, enough alumni around the world. And here's bring another up. one of my my whys and my purpose right here. This little guy just crawled into the room. So this oh, is yeah. uh, little, uh, little John David here. Oh, I love that name. You got it yeah. right. JD is in the house to elevate oh, yeah. the experience, the Youth Education Conference. Join us all at elevate.kids, uh, www.elevate.kids. Michael Unbroken, uh, let's give a big send off to the man himself, David Williams. Thank you for everything you do to elevate others, to elevate others. Thank you. I appreciate you having me today. You're awesome. See you soon, Thank brother. You. See you soon. See you next week. That event's going to be unbelievable. We didn't really get into that they're going to break the world record. Uh, Guinness is there. So if you want your kids to say they're part of a Guinness Book of World Records event, go ahead and join Mike. I don't know if you know, but I'm already in the Guinness Book of World Records. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yes. Being unlike, the world's most handsome man? I wish. Mike, unlike Michael Diamond, who is in the Guinness Book of World Records for running uh, thirteen or 30 straight half marathons or something. He picked something. Uh, I threw the first pitch out at the Angel game on Cinco de Mayo, and it was the largest crowd wearing sombreros at a baseball game. <laughs> 60,000 60, people in sombreros that watched that game. Not quite That's as impactful awesome. of what David Williams is doing, um, but impact is the name of the game here on Office Hours, and you're one of the most impactful people as well. But we have another guest coming on, another impactful per, per person, an intelligent caller herself. Diane Gayaski is here and uh, with a little bit of feedback, but she's here anyway. Professor of Strategic Communication at Ithaca College, Principal of Gayaski Analytics. Welcome, Diane. Hi, how are you? I don't know how I can follow uh, in David Williams, but uh, we'll give it a try. I'm pleased to be here. We're pleased to have you, and uh, you're teaching uh, 
a course. Uh, you had been in an article uh, of how to be to avoid the biggest fear of most people today in business, which is being replaced by AI. And I give a speech about AI being a servant, not a master. And when I read the article um, about uh, four out of 10 Americans have a plan to enroll in a chat GPT course to avoid this, I thought about the fact that, you know, we really have to change our perspective. I've been blessed to be in technology since 92, when people were afraid of the internet replacing their job. And we know what that's done for us uh, as a servant, not a master. Uh, how important is it for people this time around uh, to learn about how to utilize AI to empower themselves with the unbelievable servancy and intelligence of AI comparatively to be afraid of it and to be replaced by it. Well, you, you know, you, you hit it. So, uh, you know, I think when we say AI, it encompasses a lot of different tools, right? I think most people are familiar with chat GPT because it's what burst onto all of our horizons, but you know, we have been using AI whether we know it or not for more than a decade. And if any of us go onto a shopping site and or try to pay a bill and, and there's a chat bot that we're interacting with, you know, that that's AI. If we do a PowerPoint presentation, we go into designer mode, um, that's AI, right? I don't know if anybody can remember way back, Microsoft tried this with this little paper clip, the little clippy guy that was supposed to, you know, kind of tell you how to use Microsoft Word or something. Well, people didn't like Clippy, but he was AI. So, you know, it's in our lives. It just wasn't in our face, right? So um, sure, we need to use it, but I, I don't think we can call it it. it. It's, a, it's a broad variety of tools, and some of them are going to be relevant to our work, and uh, others are not. So there are a, a whole number of uh, tools that, that produce code. But if we're not website creators or app developers, then we don't need to use those. Uh, there are a lot of really interesting tools that will help us create uh, images. And if that's not part of your work or your hobby, then you don't need to know that. Uh, but something like ChatGPT or there are extensions using that same kind of language model that are now being tacked onto websites. So when we do a Google search or a Bing search, it's gonna be powered by AI, whether we know it or not. So I think a lot of people are scared that this is some very difficult thing that we've got to learn to master, like even learning a spreadsheet, you know, that did take some skills, right? But I think some of the things for AI, we're not even gonna know are there. But it's important to know what is driving some of these tools and how to use them as they relate to our work. Yeah, Diana, I think you're, right on. And with that, one of the things I'm always thinking about is when when we're in the workplace, both as leaders, entrepreneurs, as employees, wherever you fall in the ecosystem, it's like we have to be able to assess and adopt these new methods of communicating and training. And I know that's something that you're uh, consider a specialty. We often find ourselves, and I think that's just human behavior, often unwilling to adopt new things because we go, this is the way that we've always done it, right? And, and I think with something like this, AI in general, and I agree with you, I remember the little clippy guy all the way back in Windows 98 
and I'm a child at that point. I'm like, what does this guy do? But it was so en engaging, right? I think one of the things people are so afraid of is this idea that they cannot have a personality, that they cannot communicate effectively, that they're gonna lose what it is that they are, their essence to this artificial intelligence. How do you actually really step into assessing and adopting this communication without losing your personality and your essence? Yeah, I mean, good, good questions. I, I think I think we need to understand where it can be used, and some of our best teachers are going to be young people. Um, I'm an advisor to uh, an organization called Intelligent.com that did some of that research that you started out quoting, and they've followed on to that and done um, a lot of research about how students are using AI uh, for their college applications or for college homework or as tutors. So, you know, I think, I think this is an area where we can ask young people um, and observe how they're using it. But I think in my own interactions with things like ChatGPT, its shortcomings are often some of the most insightful products that I have from using it. Because I'll ask ChatGPT to uh, come up with something for me. And when it doesn't come up with what I want, then I can go back and examine how I'm asking that question or what are my assumptions and why did it come up with something that's different than what I expected. And so I think that um, it's, not going to, it's not going to get in the way of our having our own voice and our own agency. Um, it's like having a smart intern around right? Because uh, sometimes by asking the dumb question or making the mistake, they can teach you something about what you know or do. Or by doing something unexpected, sometimes it gives you an insight as to, you know, maybe I should look at something in a different way. Speaking of that, how do we know um, where to get started? You mentioned something I think so important is everybody's been using AI Anyone that drives uh, any sort of car has been using AI, utilizing GPS as AI. Um, but there's going to be another great divide. Those that are more intentional about finding what tools best suit their daily activities, professionally and personally, and those who ignore it. Um, because of, you know, I'll give you an example. I do a lot of consulting and coaching like you both do. And I had a client that said, I had 12, I have 12 years of, of content and, you know, I want to organize it moving forward, but the, nothing I can do moving backwards. I said, that's not true. Use AI to transcribe all of your audio and video, and then just ask AI, can you divide it into these five categories? And if those don't look, then say, hey, can you divide it in these 11 categories? And if that's not right, change it again. And it will take you minutes. Uh, to do so instead of what you thought was an impossibility. That's a good example of a middle-aged person who just doesn't understand how to use AI. Are there courses that don't necessarily teach the AI, but teach about where we need to go to find the tools we need that are AI-driven or empowered? Yeah, I mean, and I think the best place to look is in our own professional associations. So, mm. you know, in all the societies that I belong to and under other trade industry groups, there's got to be three webinars a week on using AI to create training or to do employee communications. You know, there's always 
there's always something coming up in our own trade associations or professional societies. Um, I think suggesting it at work. I think smart companies will get employees together to investigate and they'll create little opportunities for people to share. I know my, uh, my son does content marketing writing uh, at a mostly virtual agency. Uh, and starting back early in the fall, they had a weekly meeting where one of them would present a different AI tool and something new that they tried and they'd share it with one another. And, you know, a couple months later, they've incorporated it into their regular workflow. So they are told that they need to use uh, ChatGPD and, and some other tools to help them be more efficient at their writing. So I think uh, if it's not already happening where you're working, it's a great thing to step up to your manager or HR, somebody in charge of training and development to say, hey, can we start a work group or can we start a lunch seminars or something like that where we share with each other just uh, some, some, you know, some of our own investigations or some of our own trials with it. One of the One things of the that things I keep that I... thinking about, and I think you're spot on again, is that it, it's got to be in our hands as the individual to step up into that and to bring it to the table. Because we now, and, and multiple of my businesses, utilize AI I mean, God, in so many different ways, but the number one fear kind of going looping and closing the loop where David started is people are a little bit afraid of it. And they're, they're fearful of losing, losing their job. They're fearful of, you know, it completely taking over. If, what is one of the most simplified ways that we can avoid losing our jobs to AI? Dan, you're muted. That says that, um, we, we have excess capacity. We have solved all of our problems. There's nothing new that we need to do, right? So I think that if AI can take on part of your work, you should be the first one to suggest that it should. But then you need to find out what still needs to be done that AI can't do in your organization, right? So there, there are always going to be new things to be investigated. Um, AI does not know about your own company and about its culture and its needs and its customers and your product and services, right? It can create some interesting suggestions or ways to think about things, but you're empowered. So I think everybody in their job cannot afford to be stagnant. And if AI or a robot can take your job, it should, right? Because it must be godly, god-awful boring if it can do that. Right. So, I mean, just, just look at factory work. You know, if if 50 years ago you sat there and you were just like, you know, drilling some, you know, screw into something all day, that's pretty boring. Right. So let's let robotics take on take that over. And now people working in factories are all engineers with salaries over one hundred thousand dollars. Right. So um, so we can become A.I. engineers. Right. We can so we can solve new problems. There are things that people still need to do is develop relationships, pay attention to one another, pay attention to customers. What organization says that we're paying too much attention to our customers? We spend too much time talking to them. Right. <laughs> Nobody says that. Does anybody go into the doctor and say, gee, that doctor kept me for so long talking about things? Are you kidding me? Like we're rushed <laughs> in and out like cattle. Right. So I think in every organization, we're still yearning for that human touch. So take advantage of that. True. Yeah. yeah. People thought people electricity, electricity was going to take their jobs. 
and uh, we know how many jobs have been created by electricity. I see the exact same thing with AI. Diane Gayeski, she is a professor, a consultant. She's helping other people lessen the anxiety and increase the empowerment by utilizing all the different tools powered by AI, the greatest servant ever created on Earth. Uh, and I will stand by that statement today. Uh, I thank you so much for uh, e putting us at ease and helping to empower all of us, especially those that may be a little bit older like me, uh, my group, uh, a little bit afraid and, and not as uh, confident as our younger generation. But it's a great bonding tool as well to bond in your company with the younger people, as well as if you have children, I would highly encourage you uh, to make them feel terrific about what they know and say, hey, can you help me? This is what I do at work. Uh, can you help me and show me how I can do this better with what you know? And man, will they feel great. Uh, thank you for all of those things, Diane. Come back and visit us soon. I can tell you. We'll, we'll, we'll need, we'll you, need as you as fast as, fast as, as AI, AI works. We'll, by a week from now, it'll be completely different. So thank, right. you thank you so you much. So much. <laughs> Bye. Bye. All right. Two for two, Michael Unbroken. Waiting in the wings is someone I've been waiting for because uh, I have two critical business issues when it comes to uh, understanding crypto wallets. And uh, this is my expert extraordinaire coming in. Jeffrey's here, Jeffrey Aroni, and he's the founder of Shield3, Shield3thenumber.com. Um, and welcome to Office Hours, Jeffrey. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. I'm glad we finally got it on the schedule. Yeah, it's not easy. I know that, and we appreciate your patience. But um, you know, looking at crypto wallets, there's two critical business issues as there was, for example, I mentioned in 92, people were afraid to use the internet, thought it was going to take their job. Uh, but what they don't remember about the internet is it was like a crypto wallet. It was one, not secure. <laughs> and, and two, it was not easy. There's it, it, it so many different steps and you know, and it was a learning curve that seems so difficult. And over time, both uh, have gained uh, traction. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. The internet still may not be secure, but at least we have tools in place. Uh, but it's definitely easier to use. Shield 3 really helps out, I think, with both. Uh, but especially, obviously, with AI-driven security and being able to make people uh, realize that it can be as safe as your bank account, if not safer. True. You know, it's. Um, I'm glad you brought up the early internet um, example because this. I mean, this things like this often happen when there's just a new, just a new like type of technology in general, right? The internet was. It was really hard for people to manage because it took a while for people to understand what it was. Was. So making you don't making something more secure that you don't fully understand is obviously a a really difficult challenge. Um, you know, with crypto, it's interesting when I talk to people, a lot of a lot of folks in my family that that are educated, you know, and have been in business for a while, have no idea exactly what the crypt, what crypto security means, and. You hear about all of the all of the attacks, right? Now, I liken it to this: if you have an ATM card and you put your pin code on it and you leave it lying around, 
or you drop it in the street, well, someone will find that and potentially use that card. That doesn't mean banking is not secure. That doesn't mean that, I mean, it's a problem that banks have to deal with, but no one goes around saying, oh my God, I'm taking all my money out of a bank because I'm going back to putting it under my mattress. And it's, it's not just, oh, go ahead. I was laughing. Yeah, it's not, it's not dissimilar to what's happening in crypto. Granted, there are, in fact, no shortage of trolls who will try to steal your stuff. That isn't true of crypto in any number of different arenas. But when most, if not like 99% of what's gone on in crypto has been re related to a bad actor. It's not like someone has cracked the Bitcoin algorithm and figured out how to steal all your Bitcoin. No, it's someone wrote down their private key and it got exposed or they wrote down their private key and on a piece of paper and put that those jeans in, in the wash and lost it forever, <laughs> right? So it's funny, the things that make crypto, um, the things that make crypto secure, like the, you know, the irretrievable secure keys, security keys and, um, and uh, the hard to crack, the nearly impossible to crack security keys are exactly the things that make it vulnerable. So mm. very interesting. Uh, that, yeah, I'll go into that a little bit more because what I'm wondering, I'm, I'm just thinking through my own journey and moving all of my crypto, all my NFTs, all my assets into cold storage, which I have in a fireproof safe, which I have a password somewhere hidden in my home, maybe, or maybe somewhere else for those of you watching that I, I can access. But then it's like, okay, well, well, really, it's like, how secure even is that? Because now if I lose this, I'm screwed. Like it's gone. The money's gone. The NFTs are gone. Everything's gone. <laughs> Talk to me about these private nodes and how those help alleviate that aspect of it. Right. Well, there it's a it's actually so when you look at what Shield Three is doing. Let me answer the question in general, and then I'll talk about what how Shield Three is addressing this. Um, there is no safety web necessarily. Let me put this this way: people shouldn't assume that they could abdicate responsibility for the security of their private keys. I want to be very clear on that. Like with Shield 3, we don't store your, your private keys. We're actually, we do the exact opposite, which is like you manage those keys. We will help you. We'll help you implement the kind of infrastructure that will help ensure that you're not going to get in trouble. Right now, as far as the actual keys, my first piece of advice is don't put a file on your desktop called security keys and paste them all in there. <laughs> That's if there's one thing you take away from this interview, um, there's a variety of different things that people do. Um, you know, there are, you could print it out um, and store it in a very secure place, including a safe. That's what some people do. Um, there are some managed key services out there which add a component of multi-sig. Uh, are you guys familiar with multi-sig? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, there are, there are safes that you could use. Like there's a company that, you know, the Gnosis safe. Now they're actually just called safe. Um, and in that scenario, you can set up 
you can set up keys that um, basically any three or four people can have can be co-signatories. So it could be you and one of these other people you trust. So if someone actually gets your key, they're going to need someone else to essentially co-sign for it. Right. That's that's one way to do it. Um, another thing that people do is you can literally buy these. They're like blank sheets. of They look like a credit card, but it's metal. And you literally stamp the letters in there. It's very Flintstone like. But um, it's uh, so, yeah, there there are ways to do it. I'm a big fan of multi-sig safes, personally. Um, paper, I'm not a huge fan of. I mean, any fire can possibly ruin that. Or So, yeah. Now, the way that we, the way that Shield 3 handles these things is we have a platform where if you look at all the different threats to your crypto, particularly like at an enterprise level, where, where does crypto break down? There's operational risk. And this is stuff that was recently covered in a, in a government um, release, but uh, cybersecurity risks, right? So operational is just like, you could think of that almost as um, like a policy engine. You're running your business. Remember that, I, was it Lehman? I can't remember a few years ago before, well, more than a few years ago. Like there were, there's no shortage of stories. I th actually, it was Deutsche Bank where some individual trader lost like $7 billion, right? So those, those types of policies, that stuff could happen in crypto. I mean, if you look at FTX, they obviously had no controls in place. So when you think of operational risks, what kind of policy management do you have in place? And by the way, you could do this at a, at a large scale or even an individual perspective, right? You can say, allow me with just one signer to approve any transaction under $500. Over that, I want two signers. Over 10,000, I want three, right? A lot of places that have crypto throw it in a wallet keep their keys safe, but don't necessarily think about the speed with which this crypto can be drained. If you send a wire or an ACH payment, at least there's some mode of recovery and retrievability. You can't do that with crypto, right? Again, the things that make it secure also make it, you know, very dangerous if you, you know, if you don't um, have the right fail safes in place. Cybersecurity risks are, are anything you could think of that includes like someone um, getting on your network, breaking into your machine. Um, they're different, obviously, with crypto than any other form of cash, right? So I, I won't go into all of the things. When I say cybersecurity risk, people know what that is. Now, one that a lot of people don't think about is liquidity risks, right? What happens when you have all of your money, your retirement on some DeFi platform that's going to be your retirement or FTX or whatever, right? If, if you're not careful and you're not looking at how the, you know, the trade book and the assets are being balanced, again, that's another threat. It's a, it's a little bit different. I mean, every now and then a bank goes under and, you know, fortunately with things like Silicon Valley Bank 
and First Republic, you know, there were there were backstops in there. There was these are established financial institutions that the government is more willing to support. Whereas if you look at some of these other large failures in crypto, there's unfortunately the, the SEC is more likely to just say, I told you so, than to help bail out people. Right. Um, illicit finance risks. I'm sure you guys have one of the biggest things that's going on on the you know, the negative side of crypto is money laundering, right? Or dealing with um, government sanctioned accounts, right? So if you look at that, um, that is something that we have built into our product. And then again, there's other things like com consumer compliance and, and such. And to that end, Shield 3 uh, specifically deals uh, in the security side uh, and in the educational side as, as well. Uh, where's the majority of your business today? I know you have monitored, you know, billions and billions and billions in assets. You have uh, millions of preventable losses, but you also track hacker wallets as well, don't you? Yeah. So we have, the way it works is you could drop in a line of code or use one of our hosted nodes. If someone has a setup and they issue a transaction, what we'll do is it'll run through, we'll first look at it and look at the characteristics of it against our AI. We'll also look it up against our databases of known threats, government sanctioned wallets. And if it passes those parameters, then it gets filtered off into, um, into a policy engine. So first we under, we try to we ingest it, understand it, we look at it against all of the I would I guess like all the extrinsic factors, right? If it if it cuts muster there, then we'll say, all right, it's good up to this point. How does it comply with your policies? And then we'll broadcast it directly to the um, to the blockchain. Wow. Yeah. Well it's, it's good. Fast. It reminds me in my early days in the internet in 92 and uh, people out there are probably listening to you wondering, gosh, you know, is this something that I'll someday use? Or I will tell you is if you use the internet today, you will be using th these type of solutions will be as common as Norton. Uh, and uh, they certainly will, but it will happen a lot faster than yeah. it did from 92 to I'm getting old 2023. So uh, we need people like you leading the way at Shield3, shield3.com. Better to understand this early and often than to get burned. There's millions, if not billions of dollars being saved by wow. Jeffrey Aroni and his company, Shield3. Come back and join us again. Keep us updated. Thanks, Jeffrey. We appreciate you. Come back. We'd Thank love you, to. Man. Thanks, David. Thanks, Michael. You got Thank it. Thank you, man. And you didn't intimidate me with that MIT hat, by the way. Oh, I snuck that in. <laughs> he, he started laughing. All right. Speaking of MIT, this is a guy who did not graduate from MIT, but he should have. <laughs> <laughs> there he is. This guy is like my little brother. He's not that little. He's right down the street uh, from me right now. And I can see that view. It's always good to see you. Uh, he has an amazing book that will change your life. When you talk about articulating a quantitative value to exceed what you're asking for, the reinvention formula was created by my man, Craig Siegel. It's releasing August 15th, which is coming up very shortly. 
He has all kinds of book signings and meetups and speeches that he's going to be giving. You're going to see the reinvention project, every reinvention formula everywhere. In fact, we'll be giving away. Uh, Craig and I have had a hundred and I don't even know about two years and more worth of uh, without missing a day, the paradigm shift. So we'll be giving away free books. Uh, and uh, those are valuable, by the way. Uh, so I'm super, super excited. Craig, welcome to Office Hours. What a treat to be on the receiving end. Usually I'm co-hosting with you. Thank you for allowing me to be here. I'm honored. It's great to see you. I know you're in my neck of the woods. Mike, always great to see you, brother. Let's have some fun. Let's get nuts. Yeah, let's get crazy. Um, what is the reinvention formula? What are we reinventing? And give me a little bit of an outline of the formula to create that reinvention. Yeah, so I spent a very long time uh, miserable, for lack of better words. And I won't get too much into my story, but make a long story short, I was on Wall Street for 13 years. And I was making money. And at that season of life, I, I thought that was success based on my perception. Um, and, and it wasn't because I was extremely unfulfilled, miserable, drinking a little bit more than I'd like to admit, and not having any fun at all. And I was so invested in this story that this was it for me. I'd always be a Wall Street guy. I'd always be stressed out and make a certain amount of money. I'd never find true love. And this was it for me. Uh, and I know a lot of people know deep down that they're here for something much more, much more fulfilling, much more meaningful than they're currently settling for. And every time I start a speaking engagement, I usually say, if that's you, raise your hand. And literally everyone raises their hand. And that was me for so long until it occurred to me that I actually had a choice. And in between the pandemic and this miserable season of mine, I started running marathons. And the reason why that's important is because a couple of years ago, you couldn't pay me to run. And now literally I'm, I'm paying to run. There's the irony in that. <laughs> what was but what was so good, and I encourage all the listeners to have something that's not necessarily your career, that, that's an outlet for you where you can connect and really find yourself. And I start to get some confidence while running, and it occurred to me that I don't have to be afraid to be a beginner. I, I can start something new and develop skill sets and get better, and I start to be, get good at running. But ultimately, running wasn't going to be my long-term thing, but it was the thing that led to the thing. And then fast forward the pandemic, there's a lot of nicknames for it. I call it the Great Separator but more of a historic opportunity for me when I really just got quiet, as Dave always talks about, blocked out the interference and really just connected. And as it turns out for me, mindfulness was that portal to expansion. I started getting those downloads. More specifically, I realized that I had a choice and I can choose a different story, a different movie to buy into. And then from there, I started coming up with a formula. And this is very tangible for everybody listening today. I really start thinking about what it is that you love in life. What would you want to do if you don't have to worry about money? Just for a second, like what's a list of things that you're passionate about? And then I would say make a second list of some of your skill sets, your superpowers, your X factors, things that you have to be good at. Somewhere in between, there's going to be some good data to collect and find some commonalities. And for me, my obsession was personal development. Humbly, I could communicate pretty effectively. I married the two and I went all in. Love that, Craig. Dude, one of the things I, I think about in this journey is this idea and concept of reinvention is, is truly everything. I mean, you see athletes do it, celebrities do it. Personally, I've done it at 20 years old. I was making six figures working for a Fortune 10 company, being a kid from the hood from nothing. And even today now, reflecting on that, I've reinvented probably four times until this moment. 
but there's this there's this experience that we all have i really believe this in which we're kind of facing the precipice of the abyss where you're like looking down into it and you're like this is going to be my forever life and on the other side you're in your head and you're like but it could also be this over here and that space between where you are and where you want to become is where everything changes was there a cornerstone was there like if you pinned a feather to this like what was the thing that really catapulted catapulted you into reinvention as opposed to just sitting in this wall street life being miserable drinking a little more than you'd like to admit thinking you're never going to find love and just being like actually you know what i'm just going to go for this i think so many people don't get started because of the fear of the unknown or what are people going to think about me right? Or, or what if I'm judged? Or what if I fail? And so I had a little bit of that in the beginning for a moment. But then I considered, and I talk about this a lot in the book, is like, what is the COI? And that's the cost of inaction. And for me, the cost of going down the same path that I was going down, miserable, unhappy, spiritually bankrupt, I actually began to associate with death. And, and so once I did that, now, all of a sudden, the thought of stepping into the unpredictable unknown, which could be scary, now that death was that way, the thought of stepping into the, the scariness of unpredictability and the unknown quickly started to transform into excitement, right? And, and I stopped thinking about what can go wrong, and I started doubling down on, well, what can go right? What happens if this goes right? Who can I help, right? What kind of relationships can I form energetically? What would that feel like to wake up every day and love what you do? And so I think for anyone out there that wants to do something more, make it very real for yourself. Consider the cost of not leaning into that and waking up with regret. And Craig, you know, writing our first book elevates awareness to a lot of different issues about ourselves. Uh, there's multiple layers of activity and inactivity of our own self-perception and meaning uh, I will tell you, and I've written many books, as you know, that each book that I wrote and through the process, I learned a multitudes of lessons, not just about the book business, which is very valuable, but more importantly about myself. And when I wrote my first book, uh, I can tell you that uh, they were for a different reason than I write now. In fact, four of my books I haven't published yet because... It's not about the same thing that it was about when I wrote my first book. When you set out to write the reinvention formula, and now that you're here with this, you know, unbelievable inertia, momentum, huge community, great exposure, awareness, everything that you may dream of for a book launch, what did you find was your reinvention throughout the journey of start to execution? to publication and amplification in the process of writing your first book? Beautiful question, Dave. I, I love that. And, and I think it's important to remember why you started in the first place. And for me, I felt called that it was my assignment to add the book to the personal brand as one of the lanes in, in my 10 lane highway with the speaking, the coaching, the podcast, the community, and the book. And I just think it, it's- Is enough. it true that you're also a sex circuit? Yes. For people on <laughs> For people under five feet, correct? Come on, Dave. I'm, I'm pulling you. And you You're know. not taller than me. 
Somebody said that I was last I, time we got together. I, you are. I saw I a face-off in New York City once. I, I don't remember who won. We'll have to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go ahead. We've got the 10-lane highway. Sorry. It's, and, and it was always something that I wanted to do, but I like to say marry the process, divorce the outcome. So a book was on the vision board, but then I divorced from it, and I just was building the brand, as you told me, compounding, first downs every day. And then the book deal came to light, and it just felt good. And somewhere along the lines between – signing the book deal, which was big for a first-time author, and actually getting it out in the world. I used to hear about this, but I, I, I guess I had to experience it. You can tend to lose your soul a little bit and forget why you did it in the first place. And think about like bestsellers and notoriety and stuff like that. And I had to catch myself, or maybe you had to catch me, Dave, and punch me in the face a little bit verbally. But the truth of the matter is, is this was always about helping people and showing that if you're not where you'd hoped you've been at this point in your life, forgive yourself. And all that matters is what you do next. And you're never too late and and it's, and it's you're never too old. And reinvention is ready once you make that decision. And I know what it feels like to be miserable for a very long time and also to have the life of your dreams, the career to die for, the relationships, the energy and all that stuff. And I believe it's my calling right now to showcase to people how to do that. And so that's what it's always been about. Somewhere along the lines, you can tend to get tripped up with stuff, but I caught myself. You helped me catch myself. That's what it's about. And I'm doubling down on that premise. And I'm really proud of the book. And we're going to double down on you. Uh, hopefully, I will see you tomorrow. I know you have a speaking engagement this evening. Ryan Serhant, Robinson Cano, and many others will miss you. I was hoping to get some content with you in your book this evening. But more importantly, tomorrow... Uh, 9 a.m. in Times Square. We will be there. Craig Siegel, hopefully, will be there with me underneath the Apple TV billboard, and we will be 9 a.m. 9 a.m. in Times Square. Yes, right after your jog. I thought uh, it was 11 a.m. No, no, 9 a.m. We're doing a multicast training in Times Square, Clubhouse, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, and the training all in one Q and A for the day. The takeaways of the week, whatever we want to do there. And uh, I'm hoping that you'll be there before I fly out and then maybe even get you to fly out. We got a panel spot available with Dr. Joe Dispenza uh, on Thursday uh, next week in Santa Barbara. I couldn't think of better content for either of my co-hosts and special friends, uh, but I got to jump. I'm going to meet Gary V. I will talk to you guys very soon. We'll do our takeaway, Mikey. Everyone, bye this book and if you want to reach out to me i got some to give away david at dmeltzer.com the reinvention formula and my man the cls king craig siegel the eagle catch us every saturday together one of my best friends in the world a great student making me proud as well beyond being a good friend uh only the best to you my brother congratulations i cannot be more proud of you Thank you. I received that. Thank you guys for having me. Always good to see both of you. We'll have you back. There's more books to sell. Let's make it happen. Thanks, everyone. Right. All right, Michael, Unbroken, what's your takeaway for the day? Yeah, man, it's something Craig said. You know, you change that relationship with death, you change your life forever. And, and that that became the thing that catapulted me at 26 years old. And I, I remember thinking in a moment, I was like, you're going to die with regret if you don't do something right now. And if you change your relationship with time and death, you will change your life. I love it. And uh, I think that's related to mine because when he said that resonated with me, but I think it went to security. And if you think about all the guests today, 
there was a relationship with security. And it's so funny because as we have this relationship with security, sometimes the things that make things feel most secure are actually jeopardizing our security the most. Uh, and that's the way the universe works. And so I want people to understand the relativity of where you're putting your passwords, where you're putting your cheat codes, where you're harboring your security in the end, is it really secure? Uh, because all security measures need security in itself. Uh, and so understanding the essence of scarcity and security to live our lives by taking the emotional address, the emotional passwords and putting them into the process, not the vault. All right, everyone, I got to jump and uh, it's going to be an incredible night tonight. We're in New York City, uh, our sold out uh, VIP dinner with uh, my friend Ryan Serhant and Robinson Cano and many others. And we'll move to the meetup tomorrow in Times Square. Uh, right in front of our Apple TV billboard in Times Square. Come and join us at 9 a.m. Eastern time. And then hopefully Michael Unbroken or Craig Siegel or someone out there is going to join me in Santa Barbara with the incredible Dr. Joe Dispenza next Thursday at the large restaurant. I'm looking forward to it. I love you, Michael, for showing up. I love you for helping me. And your genius is absolutely relevant and aware. Uh, As my friend, I have done something right in a past life to attract Michael Unbroken. Check him out. Same. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, brother. See you soon. You're amazing. All right, everyone. That does it. I'm going to go uh, jump down. It's Gary V time. Doesn't get any better than that. He's one of my favorite people to hang out with. We both are on the same time zone, quick and easy. Remember, most importantly, reach out to me if you need help with any of these things I mentioned, books, guides, exercises, Craig's book, my book, david at dmelzer.com. If you want to get alerted to all the stuff that Reluca is planning for me, then text me. Join our text community. Reluca's keeping me so active. It's crazy. I can't keep track of it. Neither can she. But if we have you in the text community, it's easy to post up there so we don't get blamed. Why didn't you tell me about Ryan Serhan, about Dr. Joe Dispenza, about Michael Unbroken? Why didn't you tell me? Get into my text community, 949-298-2905. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tonight, tomorrow night, Santa Barbara or somewhere else. Peace.